The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon from New York City. This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. One of the topics that we have dealt with on the program and one of the topics that has raised a lot of interest has been the question of underwater archaeology. Now underwater archaeology is a topic that has been influential in our field for many years. It's a program that for lack of a better word is very sexy and is one of the topics that's discussed and dealt with in a variety of public venues and preservation venues as well. Um, It does get a fair amount of media exposure depending on where you are. We have talked about some of the major underwater uh, shipwrecks that have been found both in the United States and in other parts of the world. Um, Today's discussion is a unique one. We will be talking about uh, the UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization Program of Underwater Cultural Heritage. Um, This is a very fascinating program, and as I uh, admitted to my guest, uh, I did not know very much about this program on the part of UNESCO. Certainly, as I indicated, there is a lot of underwater archaeology and a lot of underwater salvage work that's being done by uh, both private companies and by governments. But the UNESCO program is something clearly that's very unique. My guest is Dr. Ulrich Guerin, and she is in charge of the Underwater Cultural Heritage Program at UNESCO headquarters in Paris. She advises governments, organizes inter- international meetings of states and oversees UNESCO operational projects. The latter range from training programs and exhibitions to emergency assistance missions going underwater. She has been closely involved in setting up UNESCO's Emergency Assistant Expert Body, which is a 12-expert advisory board that has just returned from helping a variety of states in recent cases of unscientific interventions on submerged heritage sites. And she is an attorney or a lawyer by training. Uh, Dr. Guerin, welcome to the program. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. 
Before we get started, I'm curious as to how you got interested in underwater archaeology and more generally how you made the transition from being an attorney to getting involved in the UNESCO program for underwater salvage. Me personally, I always had a very keen interest in cultural heritage and diplomacy. And I think UNESCO is the best place to, you know, work to make an impact uh, globally into, you know, an impact on heritage preservation to make a difference on what really happens uh, out there in the different countries and uh, to bring assistance um, on an international level. So uh, this is fascinating and I'm very happy to be in this program. But what about your background as an attorney? Did you start out being interested in underwater archaeology? Did you do underwater archaeology as an undergraduate or a graduate student? No, I did absolutely not. I mean, I really, it was a, a pure chance that I came to this uh, to this program. I have a background also in the law of the sea. So that was, so there, there's a connection, but um, uh, that I take now care of this convention on the protection of the underwater cultural heritage adopted by the UNESCO member states in 2001 is more, you know, a chance. I came to UNESCO and um, they looked for someone to take care of it. Now we have uh, built this program quite largely, and we have, of course, also underwater colleges with us. But me, myself, as a lawyer, I, there was more, more poor chance. So your interest was originally in preservation. Did you do any work as an attorney on the preservation uh, side of, of, uh, of archaeology, or is it really just every, the entire field was something new that you went into as an attorney? Yeah, when I came to UNESCO, I went into heritage preservation. Before, I was more working on other issues, for instance, in the jungle of Peru, in environment preservation, but uh, not on cultural heritage. It was more a keen interest, but it's also now quite a while that I'm at UNESCO and have been working also on other conventions before I took over the underwater cultural heritage. Okay, so tell us a little bit about the program, how it started, what its mission is, and how you see it developing. Yeah, UNESCO is quite a while now interested in underwater culture heritage. You know, there's always been an issue in the preservation of the sites that are submerged. Always, uh, there's always been a problem of pillaging, destruction, and, you know, um, a need to foster research. So UNESCO has been involved uh, uh, with this like 40 years now. There was, for instance, uh, the sites in Alexandria were discovered by a UNESCO mission under on a frost. Now, that's quite a while ago, it's the 60s, 1960s. Um, and since then, we have been keenly working with states to develop underwater ecology and standards in underwater ecology to bring them to the understanding that underwater archaeological sites are as important as land archaeological sites and that they need also uh, competent archaeologists to work on them, that there's standards that we need to implement. And we have worked with states and very fast seen there is a legal issue from the basis already that many states have no laws that protect underwater culture heritage or even laws that allow explicitly the exploitation. So in 2001, we came up with a convention text just to give a little background, UNESCO has yes. now six conventions. You know, you want me to interrupt me? Interrupt me. No worries. No, no, no. It's not. I just, <laughs> I just, I just want, I want, to, want you exactly to proceed and tell us how the mission has changed and what the statutes are and uh, what you're talking about is very important that you say you have uh, six particular agreements. Uh, please tell us a little bit about those. I think it's important for the for the you know the person that listened to us to understand because it's not easy from from far away to to understand how how all this is functioning. It's a very intergovernmental work. So UNESCO has drafted uh, now six 
conventions, conventions or treaties between states, right? And they are care, taking care of different topics in cultural heritage uh, and cultural creativity preservation. And uh, one that is very well known, I suppose, is the World Heritage Convention. So where you have all those World Heritage sites. That's the 72 convention. The 2001 convention on underwater cultural heritage is a younger convention. It's from 2001. So uh, it's a treaty that has been adopted where this, the text is there and now states adhere to this treaty text. So that they are, you know, they promise other states to adapt their laws to it. So that uh, We see that this convention on the protection of the underwater cultural heritage is really truly changing the world of underwater ecology. Another, I mean, not only the world of underwater ecology, but the world of interventions on underwater cultural heritage, because there's a lot of activities out there that aren't underwater ecology. They are more treasure hunting, you know, fun exploration. And the convention has as a goal to, you know, set real standards where we say underwater cultural heritage sites are archaeological sites. Only ecologists should intervene on these sites and not everyone who wants and comes with a spade. You have to pay attention that there's respect is given to this heritage. You shouldn't go bulldozing down sites only to harvest artifacts and sell them. You will certainly be aware of the big problem of uh, commercial exploitation of underwater cultural heritage. We have this year a, a case of 700,000 artifacts taken from shipwrecks, you know, and on a shipwreck site. There is a huge problem of this commercial exploitation, but there's also a huge problem of pillaging. Uh, you know, you have been very much in, certainly aware of this Mercedes, Mercedes, Nuestra Señora de las Mercedes, uh, 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 you know, case, uh, shipwreck case that was uh, in the news the last years. There's many of those uh, pillaging cases ongoing all over the world. And the convention is made to convince governments to take steps to first set a standard and say, we want to have decent ecology happening and not, you know, pillaging commercial uh, excavations. And we also want to develop our underwater ecology. We want to make all of humanity benefit from this heritage. One of the issues that's very, very delicate here, of course, is uh, what is international and what is not international. And obviously, you can run up against these issues when you have countries where uh, they do have, uh, let's just say, well-regulated archaeological programs. They have boundaries that are recognized as uh, national waters, say, for example. And there's a potential conflict between uh, who really has the right to do the archaeological investigations underwater within national boundaries, uh, national water boundaries. How do, you, how do you strike a balance between what an individual country or what an individual country's regulations are and UNESCO-related uh, operations? When can they come in legitimately and start to say, okay, we will dedicate this as a World Heritage Site or we see this as a problem that's greater than the one that's within your international, within your national boundaries. I mean, there, there is a difference between the World Heritage Convention and the Underwater Culture Heritage Convention. The Underwater Culture Heritage Convention is not about inscribing things into a list, but, uh, you know, setting standards for underwater ecology. So we do not, you know, there is not a UNESCO Underwater Culture Heritage Site. We rather work with the countries together to develop underwater ecology. We are also about, you know, building bridges, making friends between the different states and to working together on heritage preservation. Very often with underwater culture heritage, you have the issue of property. Who owns this? You know, especially when you come into these things like, oh, wow, a treasure, you know, 
we say always like, you know, this is a treasure, but it's a cultural treasure. It's for all of humanity. And we UNESCO, we care about preservation for all of humanity. We will not say this is yours or yours. We will also not, under, you know, make a difference between the, the different jurisdictions. So it's not that UNESCO will say this shipwreck is to Spain and this shipwreck is to, to Peru or to the U.S. Uh, we will say, like, work together to preserve it, work together to research it along the scientific standards and preserve this heritage as good as you can. And as soon as you do this, you will see that people come run because then it's not a question of property anymore. It's more a question about heritage preservation, joining the hands and caring about the heritage value and not the monetary value. And you've seen cases where, for instance, Spain with the Yunnan Galga case that has been touching a lot, you asked where Spain said we care about the preservation, but as soon as we have the artifacts, they can go to a U.S. museum. It's right. not about who owns it. It should be about, you know, sharing it uh, with, with everyone. And so the UNESCO will not, you know, um, decide about property or jurisdiction or things like those. So will UNESCO normally get involved in a project at the invitation of a host country? Yes, always. I mean, the convention is made for, for states. It's a contract between states. UNESCO is only the secretariat. means uh, me, as the responsible for the secretariat, I will go to the different countries, will explain them the convention, will make the connection between the different countries, but it's not UNESCO party to the convention, it's the states. So one state promises to the other state, we will now protect our underwater heritage and we'll work together. It's a very, you know, it's an international intergovernmental approach that is only facilitated by the United Nations organization, and uh, we, we will be helping. We have, of course, a scientific advisory body, because we think uh, it's not only about, um, you know, putting down a legal text or making words. We also want to be very practical. Many states have no underwater ecology experts. They see, you know, a person going down to, into the water and say, coming back, oh, I have found, let's say, like the case recently, I found the Santa Maria. Then the state can turn around and say, we have ratified the convention of UNESCO. Now, UNESCO, please come and help us. And we will send experts on the request of the country, not because we think so, but because the Ministry of Culture or any other government body asked us. And we will send experts there to verify, for instance, the quality of the site, the preservation of the site the uh, correct uh, intervention, uh, the implementation of the convention. So they will get a very, very practical help from UNESCO. I think we are very proud on this uh, 12 uh, uh, expert advisory body, and um, we hope to make a difference. Let me ask you a little bit, before we get into some of these intricate questions, and and the one you brought up about this, the Spanish situation is obviously a very, very uh, complicated situation. I think it's one of the most complicated ones I've heard about. But tell me a little bit about how your organization is internally organized. Do you have a permanent team of divers, of underwater archaeological excavators and mappers, or do you contract out your work? How, does, how, how are you organized internally? Yes, we are part uh, of the culture sector of UNESCO. Uh, we have education, science, culture sector. Um, we are part of the culture sector in the heritage division. We are supposed to work with governments. So we have a permanent team here that is working mainly with governments. So this team is, you know, very often sitting in meeting rooms, uh, meeting the different ministers and talking about the preservation of heritage, uh, giving a lot of uh, background advice. Uh, facilitating trainings, regional meetings. But when it comes to really going to, into a site, we have an expert body uh, that is uh, made up of experts that are nominated by states. It's a lead 
experts, the best experts, very reputed experts, where the states that say, states parties to the convention, we think this is a very good expert and this should be in this advisory body. And this advisory body, those experts are in their various countries, but when an issue comes up, then we, we can dispatch them. It's a little bit like a blue helmet. Uh, they're, they're like the blue helmets of the UN, where the, the army is not sitting in New York, the army is uh, facilitated by other states. It's the same thing, you know, of course, in small, in our advisory body, where the experts come from the various countries, senior experts that know very well what they do and that we can dispatch to the various uh, you know, emergency situations. So what you're saying is that you have, uh, for lack of a better expression, you have a series of experts in most of the countries that you work with, and you call upon them when particular situations require their expertise in their area or in their methodology. Yes, but I have to, to really underline that they are independent, neutral, state-nominated. It's not UNESCO that will say, like, we have this or this opinion on this site. We have a scientific advisory body that is dispatched on, let's say, the request of the meeting of states parties of the convention. It's a very official affair. So it's not us that will be influencing whatever they come back to us. I say this because we had very, let's say, you know, difficult, complex cases recently. And it's important to underline that it's neutral experts that only rely on their expertise and are not biased. Right. But what I'm saying is these people, do you have a permanent core of underwater archaeologists like or, or members of your program like yourself, because you are the uh, head of the program, how many full-time personnel do you have in the underwater program, or is it just you? No, we have for the moment five people. Ah, we have, have an underwater archaeologist, you know, we have an underwater archaeologist, but um, we are not excavating. We're not, uh, you know, an, right. doing scientific research that we leave to the research institutions. We are here to assist states. Right. And yeah. we will come back with this very fascinating discussion uh, with Dr. Ulrika Guerin of UNESCO on Ar underwater archaeology and cultural heritage right after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hospitality News Network for a look inside the travel, hotel, restaurant, and hospitality industry. Host Stephen Nicole and his guests will teach you everything you've wanted to know about this fascinating industry. 
Who knows? You might just want to change your own career path. At the very least, you might end up being a preferred customer. The Hospitality News Network is broadcast live every Monday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Dr. Ulrich uh, Guerin is the director of the UNESCO Program for Underwater Cultural Heritage, and um, this is a topic that we have discussed on previous uh, episodes in our program. Uh, We're now talking and we're focusing on a more international scale, and we're talking about the importance of underwater cultural heritage and essentially the threat, the worldwide threat, to uh, the preservation not only of underwater shipwrecks and underwater cultural resources, but the problems of pillaging and the problems of uh, unregulated looting, if you will, of underwater sites. Dr. Guerin, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you view the importance of underwater cultural heritage and talk a little bit about the threats that you see uh, in the present time. Yes, um, making the round international with our program and having a very close relation to many governments, you've seen that underwater culture heritage is for many states still more a chance than a reality. They know they have a lot of underwater culture heritage because they had a very rich history of navigation. They know they have submerged landscapes, but there is still a lot of potential for research. Already when you see only the prehistoric sites from the submerged landscapes, we had not so long ago uh, a meeting in Bahrain where we learned about the Gulf region, you know, the, the, the uh, Persian Gulf and uh, the, the submerged landscape. There might be a pre-Mesopotamian uh, civilization, a trace of that over there, and we still know not, not much about it. When you take the African uh, uh, underwater heritage sites, the shipwrecks, uh, very interesting. They must have a lot in the deeper, deeper waters of the African uh, coast, but we know still so very little about it. And they might be the biggest collection of artifacts and of knowledge, of scientific knowledge that, that they're out there in those regions, but we know very little. Many states have still very little capacity and very little underwater colleges. Now, I think for science, this is still, uh, you know, um, a chance out there to learn a lot about human migration, prehistoric times, uh, navigation, uh, indigenous sites. It's, it's a lot of chances. There's very, very many sites out there. Uh, and it's for us very sad to see uh, how much destruction is ongoing and with which rapidity. You know, uh, treasure hunters and pillagers are devastating sites and are focusing always on the most important ones. So um, I have to say, when I came to my place, honestly, here in UNESCO, I felt a little bit referring to your title of your your your, your radio show, um, uh, Indiana Jones. Incredible what is going on out there. So I'm well, very concerned. 
Well, I think you you have every, absolutely every reason to be concerned about these things. But let let's uh, let's talk about something that you just raised, which I think is very very interesting and very intriguing. One of the developments that uh, I think we can say with a fair amount of uh, I won't say security, but and, or certainty, but but we're knowing much, we're getting to know much more about this. Is we know uh, what these uh, what the uh, the sea level rise curve look like for many, many parts of the world. And you had made reference to buried landscapes, and buried landscapes obviously indicate terrestrial landscapes that were once part of the continents that uh, surround, that are currently submerged. And so it doesn't just become a matter of excavating shipwrecks, but looking at, for example, ancient ports, looking at ancient facilities, looking at coastline settlements, and those sorts of things. And and that's probably not something that many people associate with underwater archaeology, but, but you make a very valid point that that, of course, is a very, very major issue. My question to you is, how much attention is being actually placed, being placed to items like, for example, uncovering landscapes and the types of settlements and the types of sites that were peripheral to the ancient shorelines versus what's actually being dedicated to shipwrecks themselves? I think there is a certain kind of enthusiasm out there and, and knowledge that this is there, but the, the, you know, the investment in the research is not yet sufficient. You have still big parts of you know, sites, let's say, that, for instance, in the, in the North and the Baltic Sea, where you know there is heritage sites out there, and it's very, very important sites, but there is very little research yet done. And of course, it's also not easy. You have to have all the means at hand and everything, but I think there is a lot of knowledge yet out there that has not yet been grasped. I mean, we will be on the, on the 1st of October in the European Parliament to, to call, call more attention to it. And we have also done this at the UN in New York already. But I think, um, you know, seeing all this discussion on climate change going on in this moment, um, underwater cultural heritage has not yet its rightful place. We could know how humanity actually reacted to climate change because climate change has always happened. And there are so many sites under the sea, where climate change has been, you know, just going over the hum human settlements. And um, we could learn so much. But, um, you know, there have been very good projects, but not yet sufficient projects. I, I agree with you on that. And I think it's a very important issue. But in very many cases, I would say that uh, a lot of attention is being devoted to the shipwrecks because... Uh, as you say, these are the areas and these are the types of locations that are more, most susceptible to looting because the assumption is, certainly during the colonial period, that there were many ships that sank and there was a lot of loot on there. There was gold, there was silver, like the, the situation that you're talking about in Spain. But what about, what about funding, funding pure research projects to understand what is underneath the water? Who would pay for that? And and how do you how do you uh, how do you increase budgets for that? And that's obviously not your question because you're brought on to to deal with uh, with uh, cooperative projects. But like you say, there is so much that we can learn because of climate change. Are you seeing any increase in funding for just doing the pure research aspect of this uh, of this type of work, irrespective of UNESCO? I mean, UNESCO has also the, ta the task to be a think tank. We're not only an intergovernmental organization. We should also, you know, uh, bring forward ideas and, and push the society further into certain directions that have to do with heritage preservation. And I think it's also our task <clears throat> to further this kind of research. So we certainly see it as our task to, uh, you know, 
foster the and facilitate the investment in this kind of research. That's why we go to, to the European Commission and, you know, talk about uh, giving more funding to these kind of research projects. And um, you certainly see the Convention on the Protection of the Underwater Culture Heritage of UNESCO as, let's say, a center point of underwater ecology, uh, a place where, the, um, you know, uh, the, the convention text is very well made. And I think it's a place where every two years all states come together and think about what should we do in the next years. And um, we certainly use this convention also to push these kind of research issues. We push, for instance, uh, issues like the virtual uh, visit to heritage because we are convinced that the access to underwater culture heritage is crucial to valorize it and share it as people. We also uh, push the issue of the research of prehistoric sites, as we just mentioned. We also try to bring it into the climate change discussions. We have the COP21, the big climate change con uh, conference this autumn in Paris uh, and the UNESCO is a player in this it's, it's among others also taking place at UNESCO headquarters so um, we try to bring this issue of underwater culture heritage into the discussion and so say you have to do more research on those sites there's a lot of information there not only in climate change but also on uh, prehistoric uh, civilizations that used more biological material than stone uh, that is much better preserved underwater, and then we, you know, where we lose out yet uh, the, the knowledge from from this research, and we have to go into this direction. Do you have funding? Uh, you obviously do. You indicated that you do have funding for pure research venues. Uh, we have a university network. Uh, UNESCO cannot do everything ourselves. We are, you know, working with the government and with the scientific community, but we cannot do everything ourselves, but we can be a network, you know, a connector. So we have a network of 21 uh, teaching institutions, academic institutions, for the moment 21, there will be more coming, that are meeting each year and work together on common research projects and uh, connecting and, uh, you know, talking about these issues and, and trying to set a trend in research. So it's a, a university twinning network for underwater ecology. And uh, I think that it has a, you know, a it's a very good beginning to bring the community f further together. Underwater ecology has not, you know, a very, very large community of researchers. It's a topic where you have to have a lot of uh, capacities and qualifications and trainings. So um, I think to have one place where to go and to talk about uh, issues of the scientific community is very important. And UNESCO tries to provide this place to the scientific community. Do you engage in any cooperative arrangements with the private sector? I mean, we are always working uh, as UNESCO a lot with the private sector. Uh, we are very much working with NGOs. We're working with universities. We are working all with all kinds of partners. So, yes, I mean, with all kinds of partners. Right. Well, what, one of the issues uh, certainly that is pivotal to the kind of work that you do, and I, I again, I'm not familiar with the inner workings of, of how UNESCO is doing a lot of this stuff, and that's why I find this very fascinating, is there has been a tremendous amount of advancement in the reconstruction of sea level curves. And it's an international in scope, and we're starting to get maps, detailed maps, with detailed underground uh, uh, sub submerged reconstructions of chronologies, radiocarbon dates, and uh, a very, very reasonable uh, reconstructions of what the continental shelf looks like, certainly in, in the various uh, uh, coastlines of the United States and, and elsewhere as well. Do you engage in those kind of modeling um, 
exercises so that you can understand where uh, the submerged uh, potential buried coastlines are? Do you work with that kind of thing? And uh, do you assimilate that database, say, into an, an international sea level rise curve? Is there such a thing going on or not? You can only do so much. We are not a research organization. Right. So that means we are working with a researcher that do this. We do meetings with them. We take on board what they say and turn around and say this to governments worldwide to take it into account. So we see each other as a connector between the two. The scientific community doing the research telling us and we turn around and tell this to the governments and not only like one government or two, but all governments worldwide to make a change globally because I think that is what needed, what is needed to, to have you know, taken this on board on a global level. And that's what UNESCO is providing, to listen to the scientific community and then trying to change the legal standards, the policy standards, and, you know, politic reaction to that. Um, that, that is what our task is. Right, and, and, and clearly, you know, from, from what you've said and, and, and what I've read, uh, w- you have short-term goals and you have more immediate goals. I mean, obviously, uh, you have to take certain actions to protect uh, sites that are being threatened, and you also have to use uh, to mobilize uh, groups of, or teams, as you had indicated, to help in states of emergencies. Can you give us uh, uh, an example of a... Uh, immediately threatened location in which you've mobilized teams to protect the site or to get involved with an emergency situation? Yes, we had several of these kind of missions lately. That is our scientific advisory body that does this. That is a 12 expert advisory body. And we had, for instance, last year a case where Haiti's Minister of Culture came to UNESCO and asked us for help. There was a huge announcement of, oh, we found the Santa Maria. There was an enormous pressure, mediatic pressure, um, on the government of Haiti that put into danger a region that is very much, you know, um, targeted by pillagers, targeted by treasure hunters and, you know, this kind of situation. And that very helped very fast. We sent our advisory body down to uh, check the site, check, check the situation around. And it was not to Santa Maria, but we knew this basically from before because it's quite well known where the Santa Maria actually is. But um, it was more a question of securing all the heritage sites in the region and bringing back, uh, you know, the respect to, to scientific standards and not going into a kind of a hype situation. And there was a, a very helpful, situ- uh, helpful, uh, uh, you know, uh, assistance mission to, to Haiti. We did the same kind of thing uh, this year in Madagascar, where the Ministry of Culture of Madagascar came to UNESCO in Paris and solicited our help in the case of, of you know, also hugely publicized uh, find, so-called find, of uh, uh, a pirate shipwreck in, in uh, Madagascar that wasn't, and not a pirate shipwreck, but where the sites around and the site itself had been largely put uh, in danger uh, of pillaging and had been, uh, you know, there had been digging ongoing on the site that was not under any scientific control. There were no underwater colleges there. So the archaeological sites were um, very negatively impacted by this and our assistance mission has a very short, in a very short and very practical, um, you know, um, intervention shown what which side was which actually really and what what we what it was what we are looking at. Um, it stabilized uh, the governmental approach to underwater culture heritage, and we are now developing in both countries, of course, long term programs to uh, train underwater ecologists and to research the heritage sites and put them, you know, in in some kind of protection level. We do the same just now in Panama. So um, there's 
these kind of assistance missions ongoing. You have to see that, um, you know, in underwater cultural heritage, you talked to me about this wonderful, lab, uh, you know, uh, research on, on uh, uh, submerged landscapes. Some countries have a very good, fantastic level of scientific research on underwater cultural heritage. And many, many countries are, you know, have never gone to, gone to the water. There's a very a large disparity between the capacities of the different countries, the so knowledge about underwater catcher heritage, the possibilities to go in, you know, on underwater heritage sites. And uh, for us, it's a task to help those states that have, you know, themselves not a possibility to protect their sites or even understand what they are and uh, to cover up for them and come with competence and, um, you know, uh, pay attention that the good standards of heritage protection are preserved. And we will be back with our final segment on underwater cultural heritage and its protection and the involvement of UNESCO in that venture right after these words. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Arvind Vora, weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. 
This is Joe Schuldenrein with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, and uh, our very fascinating topic of discussion uh, today is on the role of uh, UNESCO and underwater cultural heritage, and my special guest is Dr. Ulrich Guerin, who heads the program. She is an attorney by training and she has immersed herself in the study of uh, and, and, and in actually facilitating uh, the cultural heritage program at UNESCO for underwater archaeology. And over the break, we were talking about, in, in a sense, the let's, for lack of a better word, the lack of respect and the lack of understanding on underwater archaeology as uh, we understand it today. And uh, Dr. Garen was mentioning that one of the biggest problems is, of course, access. And to, I would add to that the enormous expense that's involved in, in uh, undertaking under, underwater archaeology. Dr. Garen, why don't you tell us a little bit more about this access question and, and what's involved yes, here? Yes, I mean, we have been wondering at UNESCO for a while now, why is it that states and the public do react so little to the destruction of underwater culture heritage? If you would say someone bulldozes down to Tenjamun's grave and makes off with the contents, uh, everyone would scream and say, what's a horrible, this is, shouldn't be allowed. While this happens all the time with underwater culture heritage, while the public reaction is rather one of hooray, we go treasure hunting, hooray, someone found this wonderful uh, uh, treasure out there, then uh, one of outrage. And we have been always wondering, why is it that this heritage, why, why is there such a, such a difference made? And I think that the main issue um, might be just the issue of public access, that the public has to get more benefit from underwater culture heritage. I'm um, very content, it was not me who wrote it, but the 2001 convention of UNESCO already says the Convention on the Protection of the Underwater Culture Heritage, it already says public access to underwater culture heritage should be encouraged. So it's very clearly, you know, please go ahead and let the public participate, um, bring this heritage um, out there. It's, of course, always very difficult. Most sites are, you know, still underwater and we cannot, you know, recover all shipwrecks out there. It's really not, not what we want to do. So how do we bring this heritage to the public? And there's a lot of development recently. And UNESCO sees also its task of fostering this, uh, these kind of projects and to, to facilitate them. There's a lot of um, development of virtual representations where 3D models are made. I've been recently, uh, we are preparing here uh, one of those big projects on virtual representation of underwater heritage. I've been recently in... Uh, a screen room, a 3D screen room, where you can put on these kind of, uh, you know, 3D uh, um, glasses, and you can basically walk over the underwater culture heritage. It's, it's fascinating. The new developments that come in this direction of access to underwater heritage, that is something where we should prepare ourselves to see much more in the years to come. All the underwater ecologists that I know that are, you know, in the advance of their profession are working a lot on this to make this heritage more accessible to the public. There's even a development of a robot, a robot that shall be, uh, you know, working as an archaeologist in the deep waters where a normal human being can't go anymore. You know, uh, there is the French archaeologists are working on a robot to go on to the Danton shipwreck that is uh, one and a half kilometers deep um, in, in cooperation uh, with UNESCO in a, in a project on World War One on the heritage. 
underwater heritage. So that is, you know, there's a lot of development in these kind of things to make the underwater heritage more accessible. And I, the true hope that this will change all the view, all the view of the public to underwater heritage to understand that this is not the heritage out there, the, the, the treasure out there in the water, but our heritage, the legacy of humanity, that is, you know, what belongs to each one of us and not just to one treasure hunter that goes and takes something. And um, we put a lot of hope in this kind of developments. Have you gotten involved in any controversies with treasure hunter organizations? Have you worked with them in any way? Um, I think of, you know, one of the big, uh, well, for lack of a better word, treasure hunter organizations in, in our part of the world is, is a company called Odyssey. Um, do you get involved in that? Do you get involved in education or trying to cooperate with, with these I operations? We certainly do not cooperate with under, with these treasure hunters. I mean, that is not what UNESCO does. We are finding them. We are on no, the I understand on the that. Right you know, but, I mean, so I have to laugh. I have to laugh in the question because my whole library is actually full of books of treasure hunters that sent me their books and tried to persuade me that they are good underwater ecologists. No treasure hunter can be a good ecologist because if you go uh, for artifacts that are sellable, uh, that is just not possible that you do in the same moment good scientific research. Uh, we work a lot with uh, national authorities, and they tell me, even if they only take a consultant, an archaeologist consultant, what is done in many mm -hmm. states today, um, and they have to put look at their profitability, even then already they note that certain things like iron are not found anymore because you have to put money in conservation. Right. So, I mean, how, how can you then expect that a treasure hunter who has to pay himself these artifacts he recovers, uh, you know, will be doing good scientific research. You will necessarily only take materials that do not need a conservation ex uh, effort. You will necessarily own, you know, take the least documentation possible, but you know enough to keep UNESCO calm. So, um, you know, I we do not work with treasure hunters. We have looked uh, very closely at what they do, very closely. Right. We are very much working with our authorities. We are monitoring each one of them. And we know exactly what's what's happening, and we are working very closely with the governments to cut off this kind of commercial exploitation business. Yeah, well, I, I understand that, of course, and I, I wouldn't for a moment presume to say that whatever <laughs> they do is is important. But we have had um, a certain measure of cooperation with some private organizations that um, will will give a tremendous amount of funding and set up research funding for research elements of that. Now, this is a very controversial type of situation, and it's one that's probably more common in the States in the U.S. than, than in other parts of the world because, as you know, there's a very strong private enterprise ethic in this country. And, uh, there but do not get me wrong. Yeah, do not get me wrong. We do not want to say that a private enterprise is bad. Not at all. To the contrary, we know a lot of uh, private uh, associations that work with underwater culture heritage in a very good way. Yes, yeah, so well, that's, and, and that's what I'm talking about, is yes. that there are, co there are cooperative lines that are potentially workable that, that can be used. I understand clearly that the objectives of a private operation are diametrically opposed, and you can phrase it any way you want. It becomes treasure, hunter, treasure hunting in some way, shape, or form, no matter how you call it. I understand that. But, but certainly there are ways in, at a time when, when funding is so scarce and funding for purely scientific objectives has become uh, almost fossil 
commercialized, if you will, especially in many parts of uh, parts of the world where uh, you know money is tight and um, that kind of financing is is difficult. So creative ways have to be established in which uh, in which it's possible to at least get get all the parties who have some kind of a vested interest in this to cooperate, because we all know that underwater archaeology is a very expensive operation. I'm fully agreeing. There's a lot of associations out there, you know, when you go to to RBM that are working in the Mediterranean to, you know, have the fun of discovering sites. Um, That is not a problem for us. For us, the problem is if you go to an archaeological site to harvest the artifacts and to sell them to finance yourself. That is a problem. No, there's no question. I think. I, I, yeah. I think it, I think it's a problem that unfortunately is not going away, um, and and it's one of those very delicate balances that one has to establish. And and certainly here, and in in parts of Europe, certainly there has to be some kind of a cooperative understanding. What do you see as the main problems in the next few years of immediate concern for uh, UNESCO in terms of underwater archaeology? What are what, what are the direct issues that have to be handled on say I won't say an emergency case. But but certainly, what what you see as the short term objectives for um, for UNESCO's program? But we see it always very globally, right? It's not one country or, or another country. It's more Clearly. a global view. And when I I look at the you know globally on underwater ecology, then um, you know it's really uh, for me a, a really issue to give the underwater heritage to the public to you know make not only scientific research but also turn it around and give it to the public, that the public can benefit from this underwater culture heritage. That will be a question of the survival of underwater ecology, that the public can benefit from underwater culture heritage. And there is a responsibility for each one of the underwater cultures working out there, for each researcher to always keep in mind, it's not only for, you know, your scientific um, pleasure of researching, it's you have to turn around and give it to the public and that the public can say, Wow, this is my heritage. I embrace it and I, uh, you know, care for it. That is the the main main challenge that we have in front of us. That doesn't mean that we have not also, you know, the big issue of building capacity. The majority of countries out there have no underwater colleges, have no idea how to deal with their underwater culture heritage. You know, they they also turn around to us and say, like, we really know we have a lot of fantastic sites over there. We really want to have, uh, you know, a view on them and, and want to research them, but we have just no idea how to do it, and we have no means to go there. And um, that's what we're slowly working on. But the main flag... Yes, I I think that this is the biggest problem, and it's not just under... It is underwater archaeology, probably more than any other aspect of archaeology, but uh, two points that you've hit on that are very critical is the absolute urgency of public outreach, because the public will be funding these types of ventures in the future. There's no question, and that's an art problem for archaeology all over the world, I think. And the other problem that you, you really uh, put your finger on is training. I mean, underwater archaeology training programs are few and far between. There are very few universities here in the States that have that capacity. And we simply have a shortage of expertise in this field, which requires a tremendous amount of interdisciplinary training. Uh, Where do you see that going? I mean, there there are, you can count on the fingers of two hands the number of underwater archaeology programs we have in the States. And that's ridiculous. Yeah, go at, ahead. At UNESCO, at UNESCO, we do a lot of training for of underwater ecologists. That's not, you know, very so. Like, I mean, 
that wouldn't be possible to do more. That is not what I, I see the problem. The problem is we need to have jobs, uh, real employments for young underwater ecologists to right. grow and to build up authorities in the countries. And that, you know, the countries need to take this up as their responsibility. And the main issue is actually to inscribe the uh, preventive assessment of areas where you know, seabed works are going on, you know, that you have to pay for underwater ecology to go on. And that is just a question of changing law. You have to write into the law everyone who wants to, you know, put out there on the seabed, you know, wind farms or a pipeline has to pay for preventive ecology. Then you would have the funding and the money to employ underwater ecologists. And as soon as as there's a job, then you also find the underwater ecologist. And then you will have also more academic training if there's jobs out there. Right, yeah. but the, but 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 this is where I, I was getting back earlier to one of our discussions. You're t- you're right. Offshore exploration is going to be one of the biggest motivations for training and developing underwater archaeology. For example, we've worked with the oil and gas pipeline industry for years, and very slowly they are starting to understand that with offshore oil exploration comes a tremendous dedication to underwater archaeology. And this is, you know, not without its controversy, but those are the ways that this type of development will occur. Do you agree? But I think it's also for the the enterprises that do this kind of work out there in the you know in the sea. But it's a very nice thing to do. We have this case here of Nord Stream in 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 Europe, where a pipeline layer was finding some hundred and forty shipwrecks, I think, and you know giving all the information to the ecologists, giving the chance to them to work on the shipwrecks, and it was a very positive thing for both you know both parties. The ecologists could do the research. And the enterprise had a positive image and, you know, could show that there is also something positive about pipeline laying, you know, we all critique it. And of course, you know, but there can also be some positive outcomes. And for an enterprise uh, to grasp this positive aspect, I think, you know, they should think about it and, you know, invest more in underwater ecology in these kind of areas. And there is also the legal element of it. Uh, compliance, preservation is, is part and parcel of the law in very many countries and ma- very many states. And when there's a mandatory aspect of uh, discussing preservation of sites off the continental shelf, then it becomes a very, very major issue that a lot of developers have to deal with. For example, the wind farms and the oil and gas exploration companies. Once this becomes a compliance and legal issue, then all of a sudden the money frees up and it's possible to develop create to develop creative ways of making this work and to promote the entire uh, the entire question of underwater archaeology heritage and preservation and I would think that that's something that's probably going to expand in the next few years. Are you seeing that as well? That is something where you really need the UNESCO 2001 Convention on the Protection of the Underwater Heritage for. Absolutely. You know, the convention is uh, protecting the underwater heritage in all kinds of waters, meaning also the international waters. Absolutely. That means uh, you cannot just run havoc in international waters anymore because you're out of the national jurisdiction. You have to respect, you know, the heritage preservation uh, standard. And that's why we encourage all states, all the U.S. and, and all, all states out there to ratify the convention and to implement it and to protect the heritage through it. Sounds like you have your work cut out for you in the next few years, that's for sure. Yes. <laughs> uh, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Ulrich Guerin, who is the head of Underwater Cultural Heritage at UNESCO headquarters in Paris. Um, she has worked 
extensively in trying to promote programs that uh, lead to cooperation and to joint ventures in uh, cultural heritage management and preservation in underwater archaeology. Thank you so much for appearing on the program. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And until next time, this is Joe Schildenrein for Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology. Tune in again next week. Good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.